one and a half pages of legislation that govern an $80 billion industry that still allow for chemicals of concern that cause cancer, linked to endocrine disruption, all those things, neurotoxicity, those chemicals are in our products and the government has not taken action yeah. on a federal level. You know, the sperm count um, in the U.S. is down 50% right. over the last 25 years. And, you know, about 40% of male sperm is now defective. So if we don't think it's impacting men, it's absolutely impacting. It's impacting of all of us. And so, you know, every one of us needs to be focused on our bodies and our safety and hopefully, you know, just knowing a little bit more. Uh, and I also think that, you know, I say that our, the product we sell is beauty, but we're trying to sell a clean lifestyle, you know, a lifestyle that you live, Rich. And I think that just those little things like just wash your floors with water and vinegar, take your shoes off at the door, you know, get rid of the plastic containers over time. Don't use nonstick yeah. pans. I mean, there's some basic things that can make a difference in your life right out of the gate. That's Greg Renfrew. And this is the Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. How goes it? My name is Rich Roll, your host on this podcast enterprise, on which I welcome all of you with arms outstretched. So this show spends a lot of time exploring the health, the environmental, and the ethical implications of the food we eat. But what goes under the radar, unfortunately, is how absolutely mindless and uninformed most of us are when it comes to the quality and the nature of the countless products we slather daily on our largest organ, our skin. Right now, there are more than 80,000 chemicals currently on the market, many of which we know for a fact to be harmful to human health that nonetheless find their way into a vast and, and dare I say problematic array of skincare, beauty, and cleaning products. Now, this may not come as a total surprise, but what I personally was shocked to learn is that due to laws that haven't been updated in 80 years, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, the organization that we rely upon when it comes to ensuring the safety of things we put in and on our bodies, doesn't necessarily screen product ingredients for safety. In fact, the FDA provides very little oversight or regulation when it comes to what ends up in beauty products. And here's the real kicker. It has zero authority to recall products, to pull them off the shelves, even in the event of a proven harm. Put another way, companies are basically allowed to self-regulate, to use harmful ingredients and make their own judgments about safety. And there's something, I don't know about you, that just doesn't quite sit right with me about that. Serial entrepreneur Greg Renfrew was so impacted by this revelation, she decided to do something about it. Hence was born Beauty Counter, a market-disrupting, direct-to-consumer line of clean, safe makeup and skincare products that made Fast Company's 2019 list of the 50 most innovative companies. But Beauty Counter isn't just about toxic-free fare. It's about responsible sourcing and next level transparency. It's about creating economic opportunity for women and it's about consumer education. But I think what's most impressive is Greg and Beauty Counter's commitment to advocacy, to overhauling the archaic laws that currently govern the beauty industry. But Greg is more than a founder and a CEO. She is a powerful force of nature. And this is a great conversation that 
I can guarantee you, is going to leave you rethinking what you put on your body. And it's all coming up in a couple of few. But first. We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested, or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentous products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentus's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentus for yourself by going to livemomentous.com slash richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S dot com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But 
no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but Basically, you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. Okay, so like more than a handful of past guests on this show, I first met Greg at the Nantucket Project about a year and a half ago. We became friends. Her husband, Mark, is my go-to workout partner. In fact, we're doing Otillo Catalina together at the end of February. Uh, Greg has been an incredible mentor to Julie and her burgeoning plant-based cheese company, Shri Moo. Uh, and I've had the good fortune of getting to watch Greg in action. And she's just super impressive. In addition to running Beauty Counter, which counts something like 150 employees and 40,000 consultants in its ranks. She lobbies fearlessly for cosmetic industry regulation on Capitol Hill. And she's also an incredible mom to three truly amazing kids. And I do not say this lightly. Mark and Greg's kids are quite remarkable. And so I was delighted that she agreed to share her story on the show today and to help everyone better understand how important it is to be educated on these issues so we can better protect ourselves and our families. So that's it. This is me and Greg Renfrew. Well, thanks for doing this. Thank you for making all the way up here to sit down. This is a long time coming. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Me too. It's an honor to be here. You have created quite the uh, amazing organization. I want to get into like how this whole thing happened and the intentionality behind it. It's super interesting. So first of all, like congrats on what you've manifested and created because it's really truly something to behold. When I when I was uh, going into Santa Monica to meet our mutual friend, Tom Scott, the other day, I was supposed to meet him at his hotel. And at the last second, he's like, meet me at this address. And I didn't know that that was beauty counter. And I'm like, what is this building? You know, and I go up and it opens up into this whole amazing world, your fiefdom. <laughs> yeah, cool. my fiefdom. I'm in my flip-flops. I'm like, I feel underdressed in here. You know, that's what I always get accused of that. And some <laughs> yeah. of the people that have come to work at the county say, do we have to be dressed up all the time? I'm like, no, I just came from New York. <laughs> yeah. I like to dress up sometimes, right. but you, know, you can wear whatever you want to. So, well, let's start at the beginning. Um, 
you are, I mean, I think it's fair to say you're a serial entrepreneur. Like this isn't your first time at bat. Like you've launched uh, uh, successful companies in the past, like going back to like cleaning houses. houses in Nantucket, like during college, right? Like it's always, you've always had an entrepreneurial flair. Did you always know that that was going to be your path? You know, I think when I started working as a kid, there were there was no real definition around entrepreneurism. Right. And I think now it's one of those things that everyone talks about, quote unquote, entrepreneurs. I just had ideas and I needed to make money. So those uh -huh. two things tend to make you entrepreneurial. But it wasn't like, I'm going to go get a job, like you wanted to start your own thing. I don't think I've ever done a particularly good job of being part of a big hierarchical structure. Uh -huh. I think I tend to want to operate more efficiently and... I don't like, I like to cut out all the red tape and the bullshit. I, you know, I think that, you, you know, for me, when I first started working when I was a kid, it was just how do I, how can I, how, what are those things that I can do to make some quick money and that allow me flexibility? And the cleaning company started because I wanted to be able to go to the beach right. and I needed to make a lot of money. And, uh -huh. I, you know, I knew I could clean houses. Uh, but, you know, I didn't want to go work in a store where it was a set amount of, I like being in control of those types of things. Right. I knew I could make money on my own time and work as much or as little as I wanted to and that the end result would be of my doing and not because I worked for $12 an hour in right. the store. When you were cleaning those houses, was Tom cruising around on a boat selling <laughs> juice? Did those things overlap or was that a different time? You know, uh, he was cruising around on a boat. <laughs> I, I wasn't cruising around with him. <laughs> Maybe I should have been. I'd be in a different place today. But uh, yeah, you know, it was. I, I was out in Nantucket in the summer in my college years because it was fun. I mean, what, it was such a different world back them, but yeah. everyone, every single house that was being painted, every everything that was happening on Nantucket in those days was being done by college kids, and it was a blast. Right. Um, but so then um, you graduate college, and I don't know if this story is true or apocryphal, but what I heard was that your mom wrote a check for five grand and gave you a, a briefcase and said, "Here you go," and that's that's the end of it. That is the end of it. My mother gave me a <laughs> yeah. black briefcase with yeah. SGR my initials on it, a monogrammed briefcase. Here and a you check go for 5, into 000. the world. You know, my mother had uh, always felt. My mother from the from when I was a really little girl had always said, "You need to be financially independent," mm. and. I'm gonna get you through school. And whether I have the means with which to continue to support you or not, I'm not going to. You need to be able to stand on your own two feet. So, you know, she sent that message and it was it was it was loud and clear. I remember saying to her that I wanted to move to Australia or Hong Kong, all these ideas. And she said, Great, well, you've got five grand, do with it what you will. But she wasn't at all prepared to give me any more money right. and and didn't. Right. <laughs> and still won't. <laughs> right. So you you went to New York City and started a little business and then quickly racked up a credit card bill, right? And and she was she was like all right, well, I guess it's time to get a job or something well, like no, that. Well, no, I had right? a job. I mean, I got, I graduated from college after uh -huh. clean, I cleaned the summer after I graduated for, so I had a little money. I had the $5,000. I got my apartment going in the Upper East Side of New York and I started uh, an ad with an advertising agency as an account manager making like 19 right. grand a year. But I was, you know, going out and shopping. I just wasn't used right. to it. And all of a sudden I called my mom, I had like a $2,000 Amex <laughs> and she's like, well, get a new job. I mean, that right. was that. So I did. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, and when does, well, first of all, sort of behind the scenes, growing up, like you moved around a lot, right? Like you lived in lots of different places and there was money and then there wasn't money. And my, you know, my assumption is that kind of fueled your desire to be financially independent, like, and, and, and to not have to, you know, weather some of those things that you, you had to deal with growing up. For sure. I mean, I think sometimes people, I, I would admit I have a, um, 
not an unhealthy relationship to money, but it is a thing for me in a way that, that I, you know, grew up in a family that was from well-positioned families and was doing quite well in the beginning. And then it was all sort of stripped from out from us. And we were forced to move to, from place to place. And I mean, look, there are people who've had far more challenging circumstances, yeah. but it does impact you when you're constantly moving and you have a father who's sick and your parents are divorced and you're trying to make ends meet. And so for me, I would say to people, I'm not driven by money at all, but I am driven by the desire of not having to ever worry about money again, uh-huh. which is to me a big difference. Those are different things. Yeah. Yeah. So it definitely impacted my childhood. And I think for a long time, part of what drove me was the desire to kind of reclaim my family's position and not always having to just be on the outskirts of the the world in which they had lived because of the economic disparity between my family and their family, friends, and yeah. relatives. And so that was important to me. Right. It's still important to me. Right. So you start selling Xerox machines, yeah. right, in the jewelry district? <laughs> Sexiest job alive, yeah. <laughs> Howard Schultz and I, the two uh-huh. people that started on the west side of uh, Manhattan in the jewelry district. Oh, did he district. do that too? He I did. I heard that. And I was. I said that when I met him once and I said, you know, you and I both sold Xerox copiers. I mean, it's, it's a good experience. It's a good learning experience. I mean, Xerox had an incredible sales training program and, you know, getting the door literally slammed in your face. I mean, mm-hmm. people say that they get the door slammed in their face, but they don't literally mean the door. Um, it was, you know, it was challenging walking up and down halls, knocking on right. doors, selling people copiers that they really didn't need. And you got to like get that credit card bill paid. Yeah, but I was right? going to, I was determined. I mean, I had no choice. And, and, uh, and doing it in in the Diamond District, basically immersed in Orthodox Jewish culture, mm-hmm. right? Which which is a very different kind of you know paradigm. It was you know it was funny because they used to make fun of me because here I you know I'd grown up in you know Katona, New York, Bedford area. You know, sort of this white waspy girl uh-huh. that came in knocking on the door, and they used to laugh like they thought it was really funny. They they loved me. That guy We're was gonna like, buy a, a copier from you, yeah, preppy girl, and they'd uh-huh. be like, you know, but they they would give me so much shit, and then and then ultimately. I figured it out. Like I figured out the art of negotiating with them. I figured out, I listened enough to figure out what it was. And when I finally would say, actually, I don't want to sell you this copy anymore, forget it. And I would walk out the door, they'd be like, okay, we'll sign. And so once I learned how they dealt in business, it made it a lot easier for me to work with them. What was it that you learned specifically? Like, what is it about that that was different? Specific to that group of men, and it was all men at the time, is that they wanted to feel like they'd kind of broken you, like they had gotten as far as they could to uh-huh. the point where you were literally willing to walk away. And if they felt like there was just even like a little glimmer that they could go just a little farther, they would just keep going and right. they would continue to refuse you. But once you threw up your hands and just said, screw it, I don't care, then they were like, okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Then you start selling a lot of copiers. Then I sold a lot of copiers. Yeah. <laughs> well, where does wedding list come in? So I... Um, so you're asking about you know dark secrets you know <laughs> earlier before we started. That's that, why we're here. Yeah, right? we're here for the deep. No, but it was, so when I was really really young, I um, my husband probably won't be thrilled that I'm saying this, but you know I got married very young, quickly for I had about a five month uh, stint in, uh-huh. in the age of 24, 25. That's longer than mine. Yeah, yeah, it's a starter. Everyone, I think everyone needs a good <laughs> yeah. starter marriage. But anyway, so I I did and to a great guy, but just wasn't the right long term you know relationship for me. But. It uh, during that process of getting married and watching all of my friends get married, I was constantly looking at all these hideous bridesmaids' dresses and thinking, you know, you've got you got to buy all these dresses. You don't like the color, you don't like the fit, mm-hmm. you don't have the money to pay for them. And so I started selling bridesmaids' dresses on the side with a friend of mine. We started a little business called Elizabeth Gregg, and our goal was to solve the problem of you know dresses that no one liked. And that led me to learning a little bit about the wedding industry. And in my day job, which was with a brokerage firm at the time, post Xerox, I was transferred to London 
and met a woman named Nicole Heinmarch who was selling wedding gifts in London through a wedding registry service. And I thought, wow, maybe I could partner with her to sell bridesmaids dresses. And she quickly told me like they don't use bridesmaids in the way that the Americans do, but we became friends and I became intrigued with her business concept. And ultimately over a two year period, we kept in touch. And then when I uh, decided I want to go out on my own, I approached her to bring that concept to the States. Mm. So hence began, uh, you know, the true kind of entrepreneurial arc that you've been on ever since. And this was like, what, like 97 or something like that? So- Well, I was, I think I was in, I was in London in, you know, 95, 95. So it was, that's, it all started around them. Yeah, it's kind of like AOL era. Yes. So, you know, I I mean, e-commerce <laughs> was like, you know, something that people were talking about, but right. something that people weren't actually doing that much of. Like there was still the trust issue. Like, can I buy something online? And that was a big part of like, you were like way ahead of the curve with this. We were way ahead. I remember my my first deck when I went out to raise capital for the wedding list that literally said, I mean, it's so funny today. It said the convenience of online purchasing. And I would, first of all, I mean, here you're selling, you're a girl, you're in your mid twenties, you're selling to men a wedding registry concept right. online. And the answers were just unbelievable. I mean, the guy's eyes would glaze over, you know, they had no interest in getting involved in wedding gifts. And I remember one said, well, I call my secretary who calls my wife, who, you know, then buys the, he, at uh-huh. the time that I was a CEO of Saks Fifth Avenue. And then, you know, and then after my wife, you know, signs off, she goes, comes to Saks and buys the present. And I thought, well, okay, <laughs> yeah. I love this man. And I literally was like, you've got to be kidding me. I was uh-huh. like, you need me a lot more than I need you. Like you need to learn that this is where we're going, but it was really ahead of its time. Uh-huh. Um, a little too hard, too far ahead of its time. Right, actually. so these, these venture capitalists just couldn't wrap their heads around shopping online at that point yet. It was too risky or I just think that, I mean, they did and they ultimately gave us some funding, but it was was foreign to them. And I think that they kept thinking about wedding registry as this experience that, you know, you need to physically go to the store. And I was saying, Mm. I think it's more like a commodity. Someone knows exactly what they wanna pay for a wedding gift. And so if they can click at $50 or $75 and be done, they don't ever wanna go to a store. Right. So I, I, you know, look, we, I mean, it was an interesting business. Com- I, what was interesting about it also was it was one of the first true multi-channeled re- retail business models. Mm-hmm. Multi-channel meaning you're, you're cross-platform, like you're, yes. you're offering products from various different retailers. His, no, meaning multi-channel meaning that you as a, as a client of the business or a consumer could come to our store, you could shop online. You know, oh, you I didn't see. have to, we had a catalog. So there, we were at multiple touch points. And historically, you either were in a physical store or start, people were starting to creep online, but you didn't have multiple channels working together to create the best experience for consumers. Right. We take that for granted today, right. but this is a while ago. And this is like web 1.0. Yes. You know, this is, this is well before the 2008, you know, crash of web 2.0. Yes. So what did you, what did you learn then that's been instrumental now? Oh, so many things. I mean, I think one thing that has served me well this time around is realizing, and I say this to people who are looking at businesses or trying to build businesses, that you know, you never, you have it in you to do what you need to get done. And oftentimes, when you have a good idea, people will attach themselves and make them make you feel like you need them. I'm sure you experience this in mm-hmm. your life. And so I learned to get, I've gotten smarter about that and trying to really figure out who could be helpful to me and who just wants to be attached to my business idea. And then also, I think the other big learning for me with the wedding list was 
that you have a choice in investors. And, and granted, at that time, I didn't have as much of a choice, but who actually supports you financially? I mean, you and I were just having a conversation about another friend with an investor where if you don't have the right person, they're not aligned with your interests, it's going to be very, very difficult. Yeah. And I think I was so desperate to take in the cash at the time that I made some bad decisions and I chose the wrong people. And they ultimately were the demise of the business. Right. So you sell the business to Martha Stewart. Mm-hmm. And that becomes the that's the first acquisition of Martha Stewart Living, right? At the time, Correct. so then Martha Stewart becomes your boss. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what was that like? <laughs> <laughs> Too bad you don't drink anymore. We can talk about this over yeah. cocktails. Um, you know, we're going to talk about it now. You know, she's you know it was it was difficult. Well, it was difficult for a variety of reasons, not the least of which was that it was the first acquisition, and the entire brand had been built around Martha, and I was the face of the wedding lesson. It was mm-hmm. very much built around me. And so I, you know, I was getting a lot of press. There was, it was that moment in time where all the dot-coms were booming and younger people were being highlighted. So that was difficult. I think also she had a chief operating officer at the time, Sharon Patrick, and had me report into both Martha and Sharon. Uh-huh. So, and they didn't agree on anything. So no matter which way I went, I was screwed. You were like, somebody I off. mean, someone was always mad at me. And, and working for Martha, I mean, you know, it's, I've learned a lot about leadership and I have done, made tons of mistakes along the way, but the way in which she led people, which was really a fear-based leadership model to me was something I de- definitely learned I didn't want to replicate. It's uh-huh. because she just was ruthless. She's incredibly talented, but she is also ruthless. I heard that she, or I read that she would call you at 6.01 every day to make sure that you were still in the office. T- typically like, not <laughs> necessarily every day, but for sure Friday nights, like the right. second you started driving to the Hamptons or you know upstate New York or wherever you might be going, it was like she literally would, would call you and ask you where you were. I mean, uh-huh. I, I just couldn't win. I mean, I remember the very first week when I was going through orientation there. This is probably the beginning when I started to irritate her. So you go into the Martha Stewart offices, and I haven't been there for many, many years, but they had pretzel sticks, oatmeal, Diet Coke, Coke, and uh, V8 juice, like a totally random assortment of things. And I remember them telling me on my tour, you should drink V8 juice because Martha likes V8 juice. And I was like, (laughs) what? what?" And so when I got in the first, like I was on some plane with her, I was like, do you really actually drink V8 juice? I liked V8 juice, but this is a long time Uh ago. But but are you telling me I have to drink V8 juice to work for you? Oh, and there was cranberry juice too. And she looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, like, I'm not going to drink V8 juice because that's what you want me to drink. That was that was sort of probably yeah, the beginning. Yeah, and how did she? T- what what was her reaction to that? She doesn't. She doesn't. I mean, she doesn't like it. If you, you know, I was the person in the room that when she'd say, "Who picked that hideous color of light blue?" and I'd say, "Martha, you did yesterday. Remember in the meeting at four forty-five? Uh-huh. Whereas everyone else would be like, "Oh, I'm so sorry, Martha. I'm, right. I, I just made a bad decision. I just wasn't going to put up with it." So where does that where does that like fearless compunction come from? That's like, a good what question. What is that about? <laughs> you know, that's a good question. Because you're, you're, I mean, you're nothing if not direct. Like you're very direct. But in a way that that doesn't alienate, like you're like, oh, she's just, you just call it like you see it. It can alienate some people for sure. I think that, I don't know. You know, my parents were extremely communicative. Like we had sort of no bullshit in our family. Uh Both my mother and father, you know, if you ask them a question about something, they would give you a very direct answer. So I was brought up that way. You know, so when my kids ask me questions about life or sex or whatever it is, like I'm going to just answer the question as I see fit. I'm not going to make up some convoluted story to protect them or to shield them from understanding what's really going on. So I think I was always encouraged to be direct. And I don't know, I think I was really scrappy. I was telling my youngest daughter, Georgie, the other day, who's pretty short, and I'm I'm pretty short uh-huh. too, but I was really short when I was little, just like she is, that some boy was making fun of my name, and he was like, your name is Greg, uh-huh, and I just punched him, and I broke uh-huh. my thumb. And I don't know, so there's something in me that right. if I don't like it, I'm just going to tell you how, It's you know, just always been that way. It's always been that way. Yeah. I, mean, I, I don't punch anyone anymore, but, yeah. I, but, but I, I am direct. Well, it serves you in a leadership role for sure, 
right? Like you have a vision, you're executing on it, you know what you need and what you want and what you don't like and what you do like. And to be able to communicate that directly and effectively, I would imagine helps things get done a little bit more efficiently. I think Rather it than does. being really politic and kind of dancing around people. So it's interesting. I, I, you know, when I got to LA, LA's been a tough place for me to live um, socially. It's just been a hard place for a lot of reasons. And I think for a moment in time when I started Beauty Counter, I was pretty at a, like the least confident and secure that I've been in life for whatever reason. I think it was really humbling to move here to this town and start all over again. And I, was, I didn't really feel like my equity was valued in Los Angeles uh, when I first moved here. And so I was not as direct as I had been in previous jobs and in life. And I actually think it created a difficult culture at Beauty Counter mm. for a long time, which we've been undoing. Now I am incredibly direct. And I, I can say it with kindness and with empathy but and compassion, but to say, you let me down or I don't agree with this or we need to move in another direction. It's, I've gotten much more comfortable again in being that way because I think it's critically important in all relationships in life to be direct. And I think in today's marketplace with building a consumer-facing brand or just in dealings and business, people are craving authenticity. And yeah. I always say to people, you might like what I'm going to say or you might not, but you, need, you know I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to tell you the truth at least. Yeah. You can count on that. Right. So what brought you to Los Angeles? My husband's job. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, Mark had been offered an opportunity to start a wealth management business out on the West Coast with his previous firm. And, you know, we'd been looking at, you know, you know, New York, and I love New York, it's my hometown, but it can be a grind, as you know. And we'd kind of been debating what our next step might be. And we thought, you know, what the hell, let's try LA. We went out, you know, you know, you know, the typical LA story, when you hear someone gets transferred out there, they take you to shutters, you know, on a Tuesday night when the sun's <laughs> setting and you know, you're looking at the ocean and it's warm and it's, you, yeah. know, you know, 20 degrees below zero in New York City, it seems pretty compelling. And we, we decided to move and we've been here for 11 years now. Yeah, it is hard to move here though. It's a very alienating city. Every, it's so, it's so diffuse that it, it's it's difficult to connect with people and to make it doesn't it doesn't have that vitality and spontaneity that New York does. I mean, New York is very unique in that regard, but most urban centers are concentrated enough that provide you that it provides you with some aspect of that. But in LA, you really have to work hard, and it, it took me years living here to like find where I like to go and where the people are that I like and where's my community and my tribe. Like you have to really shoulder it yourself. Whereas in New York, it kind of just, it's, it just lands on top of your head. I think that LA can be really, really lonely. And I think part of it is to sort of just the ge geograph the ge geography mm -hmm. of the city. It's so spread out that it's, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm so tired of the traffic conversation because I, I was in New York last week, twice in the last 10 uh -huh. days. And I'm like, the traffic is insane everywhere, <laughs> but it is physically really spread out. And to your point, it, it's, it's hard to find your tribe. It's been really hard for me to find my tribe here. And I don't think it's all about the entertainment industry either. I think it's just people are, they're busy, they're living their lives and they're physically spread out. And it's just not easy to, there's no central place that you can always bump right. into those people that you love. Right. So after wedding list, you do a couple different things. You're consulting on retail brands and then you run this company, Best in Company. I'm not really sure what that was about. What, like, I don't even know what that, that did, but you, and you worked for, you know, more powerful women. You worked for 
Um, Tommy Hilfiger's yeah. ex-wife, right? Yeah. What's her first name? Susie Hilfiger. Susie, right? Yeah. Who, that was another interesting experience. That yeah. was. That was that was <laughs> yeah. a really interesting. I mean, you know, Best and Company, I, I now, you know, you say, what have I learned along the way? Another thing that I've learned along the way is when it seems too good to be true, it is too good to be true. Yeah. And I think when I went to work for, I was so honored to get the call from Tommy. I mean, you know, I've worked in the retail and fashion world. So for me, it was such a big deal. He, he was and continues to be such an incredible icon and powerful businessman. And he had, they had this legendary children's clothing brand that had kind of gone defunct and they were bringing it back to life. And it was an amazing brand. Uh, there aren't a lot of great American brands out there that are kind of older. And I was excited about it, but I think, you know, they were going through a time where he was trying to make the company profitable. Susie wasn't, they were getting divorced. I was caught in the crosshairs. And honestly, I don't think I handled my position as CEO particularly well. Mm-hmm. I think I was cocky. Like I was a lot, it's funny as you get older, how much less cocky you can become, but it's just, I think I come off the wedding list and I probably thought I was the shit and I didn't treat her with the respect that she deserves. And she was challenging to work with, but you know, I blew it and I got fired right. in front of everybody Yeah, you got <laughs> by a, messenger. A messenger arrives with, with a, a letter, right? I mean, <laughs> literally. You read in front of, you were having like a staff meeting or something? Yeah. Like, I remember it so well. <laughs> they, you know, the person, the messenger buzzes are like, said, are you Greg Renfrew? I said, I am. Are you the CEO of Best in Company? I am. Hold on, everybody. Let's give me a second. And I open up the letter and it's basically like, you're out of here. Wow. I mean, it was... <laughs> to say it was a shock to the system. I mean, I knew we weren't getting along particularly well, but that uh-huh. was, I mean, talking about not being direct, that's right. the antithesis right. of the way that I operate. That's so. like an analog text firing, Yeah, right? Yeah. Old school. <laughs> oh my <laughs> God. Wow. It was um, good. I'll, I'll, I'll give her that. She got me. Yeah. For sure. Uh, so let's, let's talk about Beauty Counter. I mean, what, walk me through the inspiration for this and what gave you this idea. You know, there wasn't one specific thing, but I was actually last night, my friend Leela Rose was in town from New York visiting and it was Leela, you know, Leela had watched An Inconvenient Truth and became super passionate about the environmental health movement and said to me, you need to watch this film. You are, you know, you're, you're loud, you're direct, you are connected. And I think you should pay attention to what's going on with the environment. And so I watched An Inconvenient Truth and for whatever reason that movie rocked my world. It was just the first time, I know it's it's almost embarrassing to admit this, but it was the first time that I truly paid attention to the fact that things that I was doing, that were doing in my daily life, that the my very existence was doing, was creating, wreaking havoc on the, on the earth. And so I became focused on the environmental health movement and started to really make changes in my life. Over the next year or two, I also had a situation where I had a woman who was taking care of our kids, or Phoebe at the time, my oldest, who was our nanny. I was working full-time running Best in Company, and at 31, she was diagnosed with a non-HPV-related cervical cancer, and within 11 months, she had died. And and so I was watching this young, beautiful, amazing woman die in front of me. I was watching all these friends of mine struggle with fertility issues or giving birth to kids who had pretty significant health issues. I looked at what was happening in the environment. I thought like something's gone terribly awry mm-hmm. and maybe I need to do something about it. And it wasn't about beauty or beauty counter at the time. It was just how do I start to become, how do I educate myself on what's actually going on that's there so that I can be a vocal point right. for change. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. 
I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily, personally, for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now, for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care especially because, unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, 
search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. And there's kind of this uh, epiphany moment when you're using products on your kids, thinking they're, because they they have the words natural on them, mm-hmm. or you think you're using the right brand or whatever, and then looking at the ingredients label and doing a little research and realizing that the gap between what you're being told or sold and the truth is pretty fast. You know, I, I thought I was that, I was that Whole Foods shopper. I was the mom that was going to local farm stands. I was eating organic. I mean, I thought I was doing all the right things. I'd gotten rid of all our plastic. I was washing my floors with water and vinegar. And then I was looking at this, and my kids, I had two kids in the tub, and it was a natural foaming oatmeal body wash from a leading drugstore brand. And I thought, I mean, it looked like oatmeal. It smelled like oatmeal kind of to mm-hmm. me. And then someone told me about the Environmental Working Group Skin Deep Database, and I took a look at it, and I was like, holy shit, it was like eight out of nine for toxicity. And I was pretty outraged. So that that really was another trigger point for me. That's when I started switching all of my family's products. But the one thing that I couldn't find for myself was just, I couldn't find any skincare or cosmetics that I wanted to use. And there just wasn't anything out there. And and the more that I learned, the more that I realized that we had laws that were incredibly outdated, the more I realized that there were harmful chemicals in our products. I, I wanted to do something about it, which is really why I started the company. Right. Um, yeah, that realization and then the leap to like, I'm going to create a company around this. Like that's a that's a jump. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, it's a journey. It was I mean, a journey. Were you looking for your next thing at that time? I not, mean, not, well, yes and no. I mean, I think that, you know, I think all of this happened over a three, you know, from, from start, you know, watching An Inconvenient Truth to when I actually started to focus on Beauty Counter was over the course of about four years. And it was an you know iterative process of trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, what I felt was important, and how did I protect everyone I loved. And when I moved to Los Angeles, I spent about 10 months consulting for Jessica Alba prior to the launch of The Honest Company. And so I, I, was, I was looking at it from a personal standpoint, having experienced all the things I did prior to moving to LA. And then on a professional standpoint, looking at the entire marketplace of products and thinking, mm-hmm. well, they're, you know, we're well served in certain areas, but in, in personal care products and, and cosmetics, no one's doing anything. And so, it, you know, it took me a while to figure it out. And and at, at some point, yes, I did just say, I think I want to start a business that will bring, actually it was supposed to be safe makeup. And then I was like, wait, I can't put safer makeup on top of toxic skincare. So then I went back and started thinking about it. And ultimately that's when the idea for Beauty right. began. And you're like the perfect person to do this, right? With all the retail experience and early, you know, internet web experience, direct to consumer and, and being involved with Honest at its gestation point understanding kind of that that health and beauty space a little bit. Yeah, you know, we I wasn't actually, you know, honest had not started when I uh when I was 
when I left. When when Jessica and I decided to part ways, it was still conceptual and it was really focused on you know baby. When and I knew that world. The reason why I was why I was hired by her was I understood baby because I was running a children's clothing company before, and she had mm-hmm. originally wanted to start children's clothing, organic children's clothing line. And so I, I think I where I was the perfect person. I was a perfect person for a couple of reasons. One, when I when I when I care about something, I care about it deeply. And I really, really have no problem walking up to people and saying, like, please don't put that on your body. Like, I care. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I'm so tired of hearing people tell me that they're sick. I'm sure you are too. We know way yeah. too many people who are sick. And so I am the perfect person because I wasn't going to take no for an answer. And I care so deeply about this issue that I was going to, I was determined to take it all the way. Right. Um, I consider myself to be somebody who's fairly up to speed on environmental issues. And, and certainly I'm the first to say that, you know, governmental regulatory bodies are, are, are not necessarily looking out for your best interest. But even I was shocked when we were talking, you know, you were telling me last year um, about the extent to which, you know, the, the FDA is just this paper tiger when it comes to protecting people. Uh, on the cosmetic and and kind of skincare front. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, someone was asking me the other day why people worry, why they feel that they feel um, safe. Why do people feel safe in the United States in terms of, of the products on the shelves? And I, and I was saying that in the food industry, if there are two things I think that are different about skincare and cosmetics. And, and, and just for clarity purposes, I know you have a lot of men that listen to you talk about things. It's this isn't red lipstick. This is deodorant, sunscreen, body, anything that we're putting on our bodies. Any of those things. I think that two things are different. When you when you eat something that's really bad for your body, you typically get sick. You know, like you'll have right away, present. right? You yeah. feel it. There's whereas, an immediate direct reaction. Right. Whereas if you're putting on sunscreen or body lotion, you could go your whole life and you would never necessarily know that it was harmful to your health. And then the second thing is, I mean, yes, if you have an allergic reaction, but mm-hmm. in the absence of allergic reactions people would just continue to put stuff on their body. They wouldn't know about it. And I think the second thing that's different is that the FDA in the food industry has the ability to recall product when it's known to be harmful to health. If there's a seminola outbreak or whatever it is, they can immediately pull it from the shelves. But what people don't realize in the United States is that when it comes to skincare and cosmetics, they do not have the ability to recall product. They can suggest, but they cannot take action. That is shocking to me. So play that out. Like there's there's a cosmetic product or some, you know, skin lotion, that's on the shelves at every store, and it's got proven toxic chemicals that have been established to link directly to some kind of poor health condition, and the FDA is absolutely powerless to compel the industry to remove it. Correct. So there are a couple things that are not happening with the FDA. First and foremost, we are not screening chemicals for safety before we put them into the products that we use. Also shocking. Yeah, so less than 10% of the 85,000 chemicals that have been introduced into commerce have been tested for safety. And about 10,000 of those are commonly used in personal care products. Mm -hmm. So let's just say a solid 9,000 plus have never been tested for safety on human or environmental health. Then you combine that with the lack of regulation where people can claim natural, pure, botanical, whatever they want in skincare and cosmetics, and there's no regulation. So, for example, a year or two ago, there was an article about aloe-based products. They tested 38 aloe-based products across department, uh, department stores and drug stores, and they found that not a single one of them had 
one little drop of aloe in them. And then, oh you know, the God. third type of scenario is a scenario, and an example would be Brazilian blowout, or there's one called When Hair Care, where they've had over 20,000 complaints of hair loss, permanent hair loss for children and, and women. And yet they. So a shampoo or something? Yeah, and it's still on the shelves. And same with Brazilian blowout, where the people who are administering that hair straightening treatment were getting incredibly sick but they can't do anything about it because it had over 40% formaldehyde. And think about your heating up formaldehyde and blowing it all over and everyone's breathing it in. The FDA can't do anything about it. And that's why at Beauty Counter, we're so focused on our advocacy efforts because we need to update these, yeah. these outdated laws. How did we get to this point? You know, this, I mean, look, I, I, I think there are a number of things. I think, first of all, there was a brief moment in time in 1938 when the Federal Food, Drugs, and Cosmetic Act past where Americans were protected, but that was prior to, you know, these 85,000 chemicals mm -hmm. coming into commerce post-World War II. And so a lot of the leading companies that are manufacturing products, a lot of large conglomerates started making these products when they probably, you know, thought they were totally safe. Right. Why wouldn't they have thought they were safe? And now I think that the challenge becomes, you know, how do you undo this and how do you, when you're sitting with relentless capital markets and, you know, you take your share price down, you know, or whatever, you, you, you do, do the right thing and you take a massive hit, I think people are scared to change. And so, and, and I think that we haven't updated major federal law since 1938. I mean, it's been over right. 80 years. So the governing law in this, that, that, that kind of covers this entire landscape is one law that was passed in 1938. Mm -hmm. One and a half pages of legislation that govern an $80 billion industry that still allow for chemicals of concern that are right. known to be caused, that cause cancer, linked to endocrine disruption, all those things, neurotoxicity, those chemicals are in our products and the government has not taken action yeah. on a federal level. So a big part of your mission and why you founded this company um, is this advocacy piece of getting these laws changed. And, and part of that has been you going to Washington, D.C. and banging on doors mm -hmm. uh, to get people to pay attention to this, right? There's a new bill that you're, you're you know, trying to advocate for, um, for vote, at the, but this has been going on for a year, like since two, 2015 or something like that. So we, when we launched, you know, from the very beginning, I said, you know, there are three things that we need to do that are really important. We need to educate because we knew that less than 20% of Americans had any idea that there are chemicals of concern. And, and look, yeah. I've always said this, we needed, no one needed another beauty brand. I mean, I'm not even a beauty, I was never even a beauty person. Like uh -huh. I never even, it wasn't my thing, but I, what we needed to create a movement for better, cleaner, safer products for everyone. And so education has always been a core component of our business. And using commerce as an engine for change has also been a core component because I do think that consumer brands can move markets faster than legislative like right. legislative reform will ever happen. On the on the advocacy side, you know, we started from right out of the gate when I was raising capital, I said to all of our investors, we're going to take this all the way to Washington. You need to be comfortable with that. And we started immediately. The minute we had any skill in you know, 2013, we started to go out there and talk about it. And we started on the st state and federal level. And now we do this in Canada as well. I, I didn't say this earlier, but not only have we not updated the laws since 1938, the EU banned or restricted, depending on the chemical, about 1,400 ingredients well over a decade ago. When I started Beauty Counter, we had 11 to their 1,400, and now we're up to a whopping 30. So mm. We had to get out there and pound the pavement in Washington. We needed to let them know that it's time right. for change. And and walk me through the experience of sitting down with these senators and congressmen. It's been what interesting. Is that like? I mean, I Mark you, said the one thing Mark did say is he's like, ask Greg about 
what's his name? Lamar Alexander. Yeah. No, it wasn't, <laughs> yeah. It, it wasn't Lamar Alexander, but it was someone from his office. Uh-huh. I walked in and the guy said, oh, you know, you effing Californians with your vaccinations and, you know, you're, you know, you won't vaccinate your kids and you're, you know, high and mighty and you're prop 65. And I, I said, listen, dude, Communist. Let's, I, I did, and, I, and I was like, listen, calm down. I'm yeah. from New York and when I vaccinated I, my when kids. When I look at Greg, I, the first thing I think is communist. <laughs> <laughs> totally. That is me through and through. Yeah. So I was like, listen, I'm from New York city. So let's, let's start over again. But um, yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, you know, the, where their total and complete disconnect is between, and it's not even a Republican Democratic side of things. It's just, it's it's on state preemption. Who gets to, who, who is the holy grail? Is it the FDA or is it the state? You know, if mm-hmm. you look at California, which has taken pretty significant health protective measures, they're going to say, no, the federal government is not the holy grail. We're going to determine what things are or are not safe. And, the, and then on the other side of it, the argument is, no, the FDA has to be the holy grail for research and we need to decide and you know what is and is not safe and Feinstein's office said well to hell with that we're not going to we're not going to go backwards and the other offices said well great well we're not going to do it unless the FDA has the ultimate power so that's right. where we've kind of come to a standstill but it was mm-hmm. an interesting meeting and and I you know I think the talk about being direct I think the funny thing about Washington it's always like oh thank you so much for that Mr. Senator thank you so much Mrs. Senator I think what you said was so <laughs> unbelievable meanwhile they hate each other and you're like, right. they talk to each other as if they're like in a super formal language Mr. and Mrs. I, I mean the whole thing cracks me up because you know you walk out of the room and they like want to kill each other and mm-hmm. everything's about compromise and everything's about who you know who negotiated harder against one another and I'm kind of like, why don't we just come up with a solution and get stuff done? Right. But God and there's, that. there's bipartisan support for this 100%. whole thing, right? Like everybody wants our, our skincare products to be safe, um, regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum. However, we are, you know, we are dealing with a, a very, you know, we're in the era of Trump and anti-regulation. So that makes it obviously much more difficult. You know, I don't actually, yes, yes, he is anti-regulation. I don't think that Trump has necessarily made it any more difficult. I think it's been difficult for a really long time. What's been interesting for me, one of the things that's been so cool about Beauty Counter for me is that... I've gotten to spend a lot of time with a lot of people around the country and and been able to hear things from different perspectives. And the, one of the things I think I'm most proud of with Beauty Counter is the fact that you have people who literally live on polar opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to their political views, but they're able to join forces and get behind right. a movement that they believe in. And to your point a moment ago, I, there is not a single person in the United States of America that has not been tracked you know, directly or indirectly touched by the health issues mm-hmm. we face as a nation today. And so that is one thing we can all agree on. And I think everyone on both sides of the aisle will also agree that we do need cosmetic reform. It's the it's the tactics that it's becoming more challenging, right. but everyone knows it needs to change. There is there is this weird trust though that when I go to the store and I pull something off the shelf and buy it, I am presuming that it's been, you know, vetted and that it's safe. And to realize like, well, that's not necessarily the case is quite an eye opener. And I do think that that most people either are not aware of that, it doesn't occur to them, or they don't even think about it. Like it's not part of the calculus when they're <laughs> deciding which brand they're gonna they're gonna buy. I mean, and that's changing obviously in no small parts of what you're doing, but um, like that's the first step, right? Getting people to to kind of shock them out of that that sense of safety. It's it's something that we work on every day and, and trying to balance. One of the things I always say to everyone that works with us is our goal is not to shame 
companies or individuals for the choices that have been made. All we can do is create a better path mm-hmm. forward. And our job is to show them the way and to help people make more informed choices on behalf of their families. And, you know, and it's, it's look, the waters are murky and it's complicated and people don't have a lot of time. And I always, you know, I always say to people, if you're going to go shopping, just at least shop fragrance-free. Like so many of the most offensive chemicals are found in the fragrances. So just go for a fragrance-free line just to start. That'll help. Um, less is more and, you know, and look for, you know, things like parabens and things on the uh-huh. label. There are certain ingredients. We have something called a never list and we always ask people to print it out and go shop the market with it. Because again, I... Of course, I'm trying to build a business that's successful and a movement, but the, the you know success for me is how did we change the entire industry, not how do we sell more beauty counter products because we're only one solution and we're not accessible to everyone financially or just physically. Not everyone gets to us. So how do we make sure that everyone's being protected and how do we help people shop the market when they're out there? Right. The bill that you were really getting behind is the Personal Care Products Safety Act, mm-hmm. right? And there's this newer bill called the Natural Cosmetics Act. My my read of that though is that that's much more of a a labeling initiative. Correct. That's it's not it's done. not really about getting rid of the toxins in the products themselves. It's just about what shows up on the label to apprise the consumer of what's in it. Correct. They're totally different things. The the the, the natural labeling labeling is important because I said as I said earlier, you don't people can say they're natural when they're not at all, and so that's just right. completely misleading. So really trying to define what you know, is and is not natural. We get a, we get behind a lot of different things. We were really focused on when Hawaii was paced, you know, focused on sunscreen and safer sunscreen because, you know, oxybenzone, is, you know, these things are killing the coral reefs. So we try to get involved in a lot of things. The Personal Care Product Safety Act was that was that first sort of bipartisan bill, you know, that was really trying to do a couple of things, which is to screen ingredients for safety prior to them being put in products on the shelves and to give the FDA the ability to recall product when they know that it's harmful to health. And those were the two key tenets of that that bill. And we are still hopeful that that will pass through. Are there big lobbying efforts on behalf of these global brands that are trying to prevent this from happening? Of course. Of course. You know, there's the... um, uh, there's a whole lobbying. Uh, the the cosmetics industry has a whole lobbying that's sort of like a self. I mean, it's it's almost self regulated. Self policing, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's always interesting when you when you go in there and they and they talk about uh, well, this is all these things are totally safe, and you know that they're not. Some of the bigger companies have taken action. I think those that understand that it is time for change. They whether they whether they're doing it behind the scenes reluctantly or not, there are companies that are trying to move the mm-hmm. needle. I, I think where the bigger companies have been more focused on they're more focused on sustainability. They know that the consumer is demanding them to be sustainable and packaging carbon footprint. And I think they've made some of the big companies have made huge strides there. They've been less aggressive on the ingredients. And part of it is, and you know, people always say not to use this example, but I think it's a good one. If I were to to be running Coca-Cola today and someone said, okay, create healthy Coke. I want it to taste exactly the same. I want it to sparkle in the same way in my mouth or whatever. Good luck making that with safe ingredients, right? I mean, it's just not, you know, I don't know how they Uh do that. It's the same thing in cosmetics, you know, a scent, a texture, all those things are really ingredient dependent. It's not easy for them to switch out ingredients. So they tend to then focus their efforts on sustainability as opposed to ingredients. Right. I mean, it's it's one thing when you're talking about deodorant or toothpaste, but the typical customer or consumer that goes into, you know, the Sephora's of the world, like they're not thinking about they're not thinking about toxicity at all. They're just like, oh, I like that color. No, they're like, I want to look yeah, sexy like, on Friday yeah, exactly. night. Right, most people, I mean, I mean, increasing the younger generation, obviously, people are more aware now than they were before. And, you know, Sephora's taken a position on clean, which I appreciate. It's, I think that most people are, 
I want to look younger. I want to. I don't want to have mm. acne. I want to look sexy. I yeah. want to feel beautiful. End they're not. Story. They're not worried about it. Or I don't want to smell. I don't want like. Yeah. I don't want to get sunburned. I mean, these are these are things that people are thinking about, and they're not thinking. Oh gosh, I hope I don't get cancer from this ingredient. And look, I don't know. It's. I always say to everyone, I don't mean to be an alarmist. It's not that I know that moment in time when a, a cell goes from being healthy to unhealthy. And I'm not saying that if you use a toxic lotion that you're inevitably going to get sick. But we do know that the you know the these chemicals you know combine. And, you know, mm-hmm. you know, we put we can put hundreds of chemicals on our bodies before we even walk out of the bathroom in the morning, and people aren't thinking about that and the cumulative impact of small doses of, of toxic chemicals. We don't know exactly. We know it's linked to these issues. We don't know exactly what thing right. triggers there's, it. There's there's the eventual health outcome of long term persistent use, but there's also the environmental impact of the manufacturing of these things. So talk a little bit about that. Like what goes on behind the scenes at a typical conventional, um, you know, cosmetics company in the processing of these products? Like what is the runoff? What, you know, what happens to the environment as a result of I think that. where I think it's not so much the processing um, in terms of actually what happens in the plant in terms of moving through the systems that you know, batch things and heat things and move them. Where where I think that you see the environmental impact of, of the cosmetics industry in general is in a couple of ways. I mean, I think like anything else, when you're using harmful chemicals, they pollute the waterways. When you when you actually go to um, get rid of your products, you know, they're considered to be toxic. I mean, it's amazing. You have toxic waste, you know, uh-huh. you, go to, you go to throw things away. So they're- I'll put it on my skin, but you can't put it in the garbage. Right. It's another, <laughs> it's, another, it's considered yeah. hazardous materials. Yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, that they're, they're in, uh-huh. I mean, I mean, therein lies the contradiction. We are putting in, we are throwing things away under hazardous material um, nomenclature, and yet we're actually allowed to put it on our bodies. Right. So I think that's the crazy thing. But I, I do think that what we look at right now, you know, as a company, when we look at supply chain, is, is obviously we look at we're looking very much at our carbon footprint, our uses of materials and packaging, the recyclability, which is super challenging in the beauty industry, and trying to use better better things and trying to work with you know institutions to find safer alternatives for the for the health of the earth. A lot of plastic is used in cosmetics, mm-hmm. um, and we've been trying to move away from that as as are many. But I do think it's also for us you know we're what's called a B corporation, people, planet, profit. We have been since the beginning. We have to put an emphasis of all three of those pillars. It's not just, it has to be triple bottom line. And so when we look at the supply chain now, we look at, you know, human rights issues. We look at our people being paid a fair wage. Our, you know, we've just recently taken on MICA as a major initiative. That's a very dirty secret that? of the beauty industry. So most of the MICA is being, you know, mined with illegal or forced labor or child uh-huh. labor in India and Japan and China and places like that. And so one of the things that we're really focused on is is taking the consumer through this journey of how we actually create systemic change in these communities that desperately need the jobs yeah. because they need to put food on the table, but they're putting people who are not getting paid. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a scary, sketchy situation out there. And we're really, we've just, our team just got back last week from India where we're actually going to hope to be the first company to actually audit all of our minds and then do something about this issue. And it's not just cosmetics, it's also automotive and electronics, but we need to change this situation. So we look at that as like, how does it impact or, you know, palm oil and, you know, is it sustainably harvest and what are mm-hmm. we doing? Th- those are all the things that we look at every single day. It's exhausting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, the fair working one. conditions, all of that. I, I think it's an amazing opportunity, you know, on the on the education tip, like to illuminate what actually goes on. And to, and, and to the extent that you can do that completely transparently is an amazing service, 
But I think it also is smart business sense because it engenders you know, loyalty and trust in your, in your customers. I think it does. I, I think that one of the things that is difficult though, is that people don't understand the complexity of it. And I certainly wouldn't have, I certainly didn't mm-hmm. before I started to build this business, but you know, it's everything from how do you create the performance expectations of the consumer? Because at the end of the day, if you're not meeting her or his expectations, they won't yeah, use the product. Right. If you take a deodorant and you feel like you still smell an hour later or whatever, you're not going to use that deodorant anymore. So that's really important. So we have to do that. We have to look at the ingredients and make sure that they are, you know, not, you know, that we've taken a couple thousand ingredients and said these are these are on our restricted list. We have to make sure they're not there. We're testing for trace contaminants, uh-huh. trace heavy metals. Then you get to the packaging, you make sure it actually works with the formula and then is not leaching toxic chemicals back into the products. And then you've got to look up and down the supply chain. What is the carbon, you know, footprint? What is the impact of this? How are people being treated? How are where are those ingredients coming from around the world? I mean, it's it's a full-on job, and we've just begun to scratch the surface of what we can do. But I do think we, you know, we talk about it internally. You can't just say, "Well, we're going to reduce secondary cartons." We did that this year, and we'll save, you know, a million, you know, a million less secondary cartons will go out. But it's like, how do you actually get to the root of the problem and change the world? Right, and these things are are infinitely more complicated than Incredibly. people realize. Incredibly, yeah. and so sometimes I think that consumers can be unforgiving because they're also being misled by companies who are saying that they're perfectly pure, they're this and uh-huh. that. They, they just don't, they don't know it. And that, it's not their fault. I, I didn't either. Yeah. I would imagine it's the kind of thing, the more you learn about it, the more you realize how difficult it is to do it right. You know, and the, the sort of average, modestly informed consumer has a very binary perspective. Like, well, just don't do it. You know, like, don't do that thing. Well, if we don't do that, then this happens and this, ha- you know, like in order to like, create a viable business that you can grow to scale, you're going to have these compromises. And I'm sure there's a lot, you know, like, do we do this? Do we not do this? It's got to be really difficult. We've focused on a couple of things since the beginning. First and foremost, our platform, our primary platform is, is this ingredient safe for human health? And we're less focused on source. We're about 85% natural, but we do use some man-made ingredients that we think are safe for health. And that was a position we took and we, we do believe that performance is critically important. Um, and we do try to, what we've said all along is that it's about progress, not perfection. We're not perfect, but what you can count on is we're going to tell you the truth. We're going to tell you exactly what we're putting uh-huh. in our products. You can make an informed choice and we're not going to do what a lot of companies do. For example, you know, sometimes people will criticize us because we use preservatives and preservatives are toxic and by you know nature, they're, they're, they're meant to kill, right? But you don't want mold and bacteria growing on your skin either. And so there's a balance there, but you know, they'll say, oh, well that company's preservative free. And I'll say, no, they just, they just know the loopholes. And one of the loopholes is that you can take, you can pre-preserve raw materials and then extract them and then not have to claim preservatives, even though the preservatives are in there. And these are the little mm, tricks of the trade. Yeah. So we're trying to say, look, we're being incredibly upfront and we're going to take you along this journey as we make things better. And we're hoping that all these companies follow our lead and you know, you you know that we're the real deal. I mean, that's all that's all that we can do. Yeah. What are some of the other dirty little secrets that people don't know? Well, I do think fragrances are a really big issue because people th- have no idea that most of the or many of the most offensive offensive chemicals like phthalates. Phthalates are also found in you know vinyl shower curtains and that new car smell you have. But those things that bind that onto your skin, that scent onto your skin, are really really bad endocrine disrupting chemicals. They 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 so closely mimic the body's 
natural systems that the body doesn't know to reject them. Um, mm. So I think that you know people don't realize that under international IP law that you don't have to claim any of the ingredients in your fragrance because it's considered proprietary. And that's one big one that I think that people don't know. I think also people don't know that they can say that they're formaldehyde free, but there are, um, you know, in certain combinations there, there, it can present in other ways. And so, you know, they, they don't, they don't know any of these things, right. but, but look, I don't, I don't, my goal is not to scare people. What I, what I do hope is that people, you know, will use resources available to them. Like the environmental working group has mm-hmm. something called the skin deep database, or they can go to beautycounter.com and just print out or never list. Just look at those, those few, those few chemicals and things that you really don't want and just make sure they're not in your products. Right. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. So one of the cornerstones of your whole thing is this never list, right? Which is a list of how many things are on it now? Like, I mean, the one that's public facing. Yeah. I mean, there's about 2000 that of things that will never find their way right. into your products. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then the other thing is, I mean, your greatest asset and, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, an incredible, um, like Archimedes lover on the education and advocacy front is all of your independent contractors. Like you made a specific decision about this business plan, um, about how you wanted to empower other women to be the, basically the, you're the face of the company, but they're kind of the secondary face of the company to sell these products. But um, there's something cool about having this army of (laughs) people that are passionate about what you do and the products that you guys create, who can then, also descend on their local governments or come to Washington to push for this kind of change? 
when I started Beauty Counter, I really wanted to create a movement. And the only way to power a movement is through people. And I I also knew that in the beauty industry specifically, but but we're seeing it happen. I mean, Barney's just, you know, announced that they were closing, that these department stores were going oh, to go Barney's out of the, clo- Barney's closing? Yeah. Wow. I didn't know Done. That. Over. Mm. Yep. And um, I think it's a sign of the times, which is that most consumers today are wanting to build direct relationships with brands. We knew that we had a story to tell, and it was a story that was best told person to person. Whether that happens physically or digitally, it doesn't matter. But we needed to tell the story of the need for safer ingredients and what was really going on in our industry. And so we, we knew that going to department stores and that old school way of doing business wasn't going to work for us. And a friend of mine said, have you considered you know, using independent consultants? I, I knew nothing about it. I think my original answer was uh-huh. like, hell no. Like, I, I don't know that business. I come out of the retail world. But when I started to look at it, I thought, this is amazing. If you think about things that have changed, you know, mothers against drunk driving or people advocating for, you know, no smoking on airplanes or seatbelts. I mean, these are things that have been powered by women and women, when they care about an issue, can really make a lot of noise and actually can affect change. And it just happened to be a moment in time where we had a proposition that was valuable to women and 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 also an opportunity for them to create, to gain financial independence or, or at least to be a, a, an equal partner to their spouse or partner. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been the true unbelievable silver lining of Beauty Counter for me is getting to know tens of thousands of women, empowering them economically and watching them th- thrive through <clears throat> through being able to be educators in their communities, to be able to sell products that they believe in, to be able to turn to their husband or partner and say, hey, I've got dinner tonight, or we can't afford this private school education, or go back to school shopping comfortably for the first time in years. And, and, and then take that one step farther to say, and I'm also changing the laws, and I'm out there on the state mm-hmm. and federal level, marching side by side with people who care about this issue, and I'm going to leave a legacy for you know many generations to come. That's been a really powerful proposition, and probably the best thing that we've done to date. How many are there now? We currently have a 45,000 women oh and men God. selling. That, products. It is an army. <laughs> it is an army. How did you do that? I mean, you've grown this thing, as far as I can tell, without like any advertising. Also, right? It's just how, the power. Did the, how did this happen? You know, I think that people care about things that matter right now. There's a purpose to it. And I think that there are so many people wanting to get behind something that's bigger than they are individually. And, you know, we literally, I mean, it's sort of the way I started selling, I mean, cleaning houses on Nantucket. I cold called every single real estate broker on Nantucket and asked them if they'd give me a chance. And when I started Beauty Counter, I literally went to cities with myself and a couple of the teammates. And I literally got up and would tell them what I was doing. I would tell them uh-huh. what I had learned. I t- told them why I thought it was important for themselves in their house. And I asked them to join me. And I always ask everyone to join me. And whether that means you're just texting your member of Congress, you're buying a product or you're selling product with us, we want you to be part of our movement. And we think that it's important. So I literally organically went out and just talked to as many wow. people as I could. Who was the first person that you got on board? <laughs> there was, well, I worked, um, well, you know, the first the first person that began to, to, to sell the product was a woman in Fall River, Massachusetts, who had worked previously with my, my partner, Gina. Um, but it was a lot of, it was my friends. It was like my stepsister, my college roommate, you know, like in the uh-huh. beginning, it was just people I knew that, that either wanted to earn some money, needed to earn some money, or just cared so deeply about this issue. The ones that are the most successful are both. They, they, they're encouraged by being part of business and they also care deeply about this issue. Yeah. There is a weird, I mean, this is, what is the difference between this and like the MLM, you know, like when you, when you say MLM or People you think of some of the bigger MLMs out there, there's always kind of like a weird, like, what is that really? Like, you mm-hmm. know, the word pyramid scheme gets thrown around. And I, I don't think that's quite fair. There's a lot of, you know, fantastic, successful MLM companies out there that are hardly pyramid schemes. But I think that what you're doing 
is it has similarities to that, but it's it's, it's different, different in a it's lot both. of ways. Yeah, you know, it's funny because when I said to you earlier that uh, my immediate reaction to independent consultants was hell no, I had that very negative bias against. Yeah the MLM or specifically the network marketing side of it. You know, if you look at the business of direct to consumer through independent consultants on one end of the spectrum, you have a company back, let's just go back 20 years. You had a company like Avon that really only paid people on the sale of product. And that was how you made your money. You either sold or you didn't. And then you had other companies like Amway that wasn't about the product. It was all about the business opportunity. And I think what gave people a negative feeling about the industry was that for me to say, Hey Rich, if you give me $500, I'm going to show you how to make 5,000. Right. It's and like that, this get rich quick scheme. Absolutely. And I think that for us, I, you know, when I thought about selling through independent consultants, I wanted to do things differently for two reasons. One, I didn't, I didn't want there to be that negative bias. And we have moments where people say that, but at the end of the day, we are in the business of educating and selling product. And we, yes, you can build a team and you can make money off of a team up to a few people beneath you. In the exact same way that it happens in a corporation, that the CEO of Goldman Sachs is going to be making money on the efforts of the other people, but they're primarily spent, you know, paid on their own on their own success or lack thereof. That's the way that we've set this mm -hmm. up. But I think it's always been about selling product because that's you know, and in retailing, which we always we always say we're a direct retail model, is the exchange of goods, whether it happens at yeah. a physical store or through people. But I think also, you know, in today's market, you have to meet the consumer where he or she wants to shop. And so for us, from day one, it was always we have an independent e-commerce business. We have our independent consultants who are our backbone. We now have retail stores. We've sold through retail partnerships. So we always felt that to move away from whatever that pyramid thing was and, and move into where the world has gone today, we needed to empower these people, but also help them by creating mm -hmm. an ecosystem that made sense for the consumer. And it's right. worked really well. Yeah. So you're firing on all of those cylinders now. Uh, the skeezy thing with the MLM stuff comes in, you know, on the shoulders of that kind of get rich quick idea where it's all about like building this team because that's where you make your money. It's all, it's all about the money and it's, it's not about, about the, the, pro the product. I wish sometimes you know I, I mean? wish our like, consultants were more about the money. So I, was <laughs> like, I was always about that, but they're always yeah. like, I'm an educator. I'm like, I know, but you could also uh -huh. sell some product. I think at the end of the day the you're absolutely right. I think it's, it's the selling an opportunity versus selling product. For us, it's always been about the product was the solution to the problem because it, again, we could have just been a nonprofit organization. But if we had been that, we would have told you all the problems of the world, but we would not have provided you with a solution. And so we really wanted to create a consumer facing brand that was focused on the solution powered by people. And I do think that I will say this, you know, one of the things that disappoints me consistently around this business model or the sort of negative bias thoughts that people have about it is that 99% of these companies are great, honest, upfront, you know, upstanding mm -hmm. citizens of the, of the corporate world. And, you know, somehow we don't punish the banks, even though they've done tons of things yeah. that are super corrupt. And I think at the end of the day, most... Um, I would say average middle and upper middle income Americans are struggling to make ends meet right now. And to the extent that I can help, you know, create a platform upon which women and men can be, you know, home with kids who are sick or be, be able to be present with their children or care for people who elderly who are sick or have a side gig because they're, you know, they're back in the day, I would have loved that yeah. side gig, you know, when I had that credit card debt and I right. had to go find a new job. And I think that if we would get more behind applauding people for taking initiative to help support their families and worry less about what old companies did at one point in time, I think the, the country would be a better place. Yeah. Um, the companies that have adopted that model, they sort of stay in that lane. And if you're a retail-based business, you kind of go retail then to online, but you were, 
you, you're you're doing all of these business models at once. It's interesting. Now, how many retail stores do you have now? So we don't have many right now. We have one in New York. We're opening one in Los Angeles. We have one in Denver. We have, a, and then we've got pop-ups. We have a pop-up uh-huh. right now in Boston. We had pop-up on, well, we've had one in Nantucket for a couple of years. We've done pop-ups um, outside of Manhattan. And we're going to be doing more of them because what we found is, it's interesting because we all live on our phones, but everyone is searching for community and purpose. And And what's been amazing about these stores, whether they're pop-up or long-term ones, um, is that they've become a community center for our yeah. clients, our consultants. It's the community at large of Beauty Counter. And people gather and they gather and they have fun trying and playing with product. They they sell product. They, they talk to people about the business and they just have fun with one another. And people move to new cities and they go to find Beauty Counter in Denver and all of a sudden they have a home and they've got a place to go. Mm-hmm. And that's been amazing. So I think I think retail is going to play in the in the future an incredibly important part, and it's incredibly supportive of our consultant network as well. I saw the one in Denver when I was there. Oh, you did? I sent Mark a picture. I was running and I ran by it. <laughs> and then we happened to be in New York when you were right, you were at your store in in Lower Manhattan, and we popped in, and it was it was like a cocktail party in yeah. there. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's nice. I think one of the things that's been really fun for me in beauty building Beauty Counter is having the opportunity to connect with these women and to meet them and to get to know them. And when, when I end up in a city, they'll come out and they'll come out to say, thank you. You know, it's, it's funny because they will come out for a cocktail or they'll come out for a green juice or they'll come in the morning, they'll come at night, they'll drive for many hours. And what they often will say is, I just thank you for allowing me to be part of a community that's, that's moving the needle and thank you for helping me take care of my family. And oftentimes, more times than not, the women who are part of our community have been touched some some way with the health side mm-hmm. of it. And, you know, I remember a woman who was in Washington with me a few years ago said, I may have stage four breast cancer and I may or may not, you know, overcome this battle. I probably won't, but I know that it will not be all for naught, that I will have done something important and that my children will be proud of me for fighting for laws that protect them in the future. And that's that's something that's incredibly powerful. Right. Like it's not just a side hustle, like it's 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 infusing their lives with purpose that kind of extends beyond their own, you know, bank account. Absolutely. Yeah. And and but you know, it's also okay. We women, especially we women, need to tell each other it's also okay to make money because at the end of the day, we all have bills to pay and money does not fall off of trees. And what I've found that's been super cool is the shift in the relationships, you know, partner to partner, spouse to spouse when two people are earning an income and two people can say, hey, let's do this together as a team and not one person holding all the, you know, the purse mm-hmm. strings and, and the power in the relationship, the, 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 the shift in dynamics between husband and wife or partners when both of you are contributing, even if it's one's a lot more than the other, it still allows you to have those conversations. Hey, let's do this together. And I think that, you know, partnership, we all know marriage is difficult. <laughs> I mean, mine's perfect, of course, <laughs> yeah, and so is course. my husband. If you ask my mother-in-law, my husband, Mark, is perfect. Um, but, you know, marriage is difficult, uh-huh. but if you're doing it, you know, together, as a team, it makes it a hell of a lot easier. And I think that's the thing that's been super cool for me to watch is women who've said, hey, my husband was not into this at all, but wow, we were actually able to get my daughter to summer camp. And thank you so much for that gift for both of us. And then you hear the husband saying, wow, I see a spring in her step I haven't seen for years. She feels like she's part of meaningful change. Thank you so much. Mm. That's awesome. Let's talk about you as a CEO. (laughs) Okay, let's do it. (laughs) We've established that you're very direct. Mm -hmm. No, listen, I mean, I think it's, it's one thing to start like, oh, I'm going to start a natural skincare line or cosmetic line. There are lots of kind of little boutique type brands out there, but it's, it's, it's another thing altogether to achieve this at scale, right? Which is what you're going for and what you've achieved. Um, 
and you know just walking the halls of your your office like you know how many people work in that office? i mean you're i think we have about 260 or right. 70 um you know it's a you're shouldering a huge amount of responsibility and i would imagine you probably spend a you know a fair amount of time thinking about uh you know how you communicate to the world as a woman CEO and what that means and the kind of downstream impact of whatever comes out of your mouth or how you behave on, you know, the next generation of future female executives and entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. I, I think that, well, first of all, I think it's an honor and a privilege to be able to lead an organization and that's not lost on me. I mean, I think that you, to be a successful CEO, in my opinion, in today's world, you have to have a relatively high level of humility. You have to know that you are there to serve. I do believe very strongly in servant leadership. I do believe I'm there to serve them and it's not about me, it's about mm -hmm. them. And how do well, I Well, I went on your that? website, the Beauty Counter website, I couldn't find a picture of you. I know. It's because I, you know, yeah. I look so tired. It's like days. even if you know our story or our mission, and 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 there's a very conscious, there was a very conscious decision to not, you know, have your bio or make it about you. Yeah, I don't think it's about me. I do think it's about working. I, you know, I am an ordinary person who's able to do extraordinary work when I work side by side with with you know tens of thousands of people, and I think we're all ordinary, but we can do great things together. Um, I think that as a woman, I think you know one of the things that I've been talking about a lot lately, in with my friends over dinner or out in public places, is just that we've got to do a better job of supporting one another as women and the choices we make, and and not assuming that. Um, that because you are a CEO or that you're a powerful business person, that you're that you're a bitch or that you're tough. Like that word, you know, it, it's hard because you want to be liked as a woman. You want to be liked, but but yet, if you are trying to please everyone all the time, you you're not going to be a really strong leader. But then, oftentimes, if you're a strong leader, you're considered to be yeah. bitchy or tough in a way that a man would be powerful and strong. And I've been trying to figure out that and how I balance that for myself, both both in my social like life and, and in my professional life. And you know, it's interesting when I when I feel that I'm most effective as a leader is when I'm the most transparent and vulnerable, both to our community at large, but also to our corporate team to say, look, like I'm going there after this and we're, you know, we're, it's the end of the year and people are exhausted and stressed. And I don't think it's, I'm not sure everyone in the corporate offices are really happy today. I'm like, I don't think that they are. But but acknowledging that and acknowledging, look, I'm trying to balance a husband, three children, leading all of you. I don't get it all the you know right all the time, but I'm doing my best. And I think mm -hmm. we need more women out there that are telling the, the true story, which is you can have it all, just not in the same day. And there's a lot of pressure on us to be perfect all the time. So you know what gives? And hey, why don't you just like cut, cut me a little slack and and support? support my, my decision to work or in the same way that I might support your decision not to work. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's, there's a yeah. lot of chatter out there about women being leaders. And, you know, I think this is a moment that we need to take advantage of, but we need to support one another. Right. So what is the temperature of that support right now? Like I've heard you talk about the kind of, um, competitiveness amongst women that can be, uh, counterproductive. Is that fair? I, like I don't hundred yeah. percent. I mean, I, I I do think that there are there are I mean, there are a lot of wonderful things that women will do for one another. But what I have found to be true in general, gross generalization, is that many of the most powerful women are not really pro women. Women, <laughs> so you have to find the ones that genuinely want to support you in your mm -hmm. effort to change the world. And I think that 
they are, you know, I always say I spend a lot of time on panels and in conferences with women who are kind of just men in skirts. They're not able, they're trying to project this perfect, polished, I look beautiful, yeah. I act beautiful, I'm super smart. And I just don't think that's what women are craving today. I think my type of leadership is to say, actually, shit, I, I literally like had the biggest fight with my husband an hour ago and I forgot to put the lunch in my kid's lunchbox, but I'm here today. I actually don't want to be here right now. I'm really exhausted and I don't feel well, but I'm here because I believe in what I'm doing. And I told you I was going to be here and I'm here. And being present in that moment and just being honest about it, I feel like people are so thankful to be given permission to say yeah. it isn't all perfect today. And some days you do feel great and sometimes you don't or to admit wow, maybe I changed five times. I also can feel insecure. I think we put women on this pedestal that are, you know, a lot, I mean, forget celebrities. If you look at powerful women and they always like present perfection, but that's just not how they're feeling inside. They feel super scared and insecure half the time. And so why not tell people how you feel? Right. But, but they do need permission to do that. I, you know, I would suspect that that projection is a function of the fact that they feel like that's what they have to do in order to measure up because of the double standard, right? Like, you know, I remember you saying, you know, nobody asks the the male CEO like how he balances his job with his kids, For right? Sure. Like that's a question that you're gonna get nine times out of ten. And it's not fair, but that's the way it is. So that armor is really a reflection to kind of immunize that woman against that kind of that that battery of questions or that kind of scrutiny. I think that you're absolutely right. And I do, you know, I like to talk about this because I think it's a conversation that needs to be had. And by, and by the way, like I, there are so many of my men in my life that are so important to me and have made me who I am today and have helped me with my business. So it's not just about women, but I do think there's such an opportunity for women to lead. And, you know, when I go, when I go to say the side of the soccer field or flag football field with my son, or daughter, and then I have these women that come up to me and be like, oh, you're Georgie's mom. Oh, my gosh, uh-huh. we've been in class with you for five years, you know, whatever. Oh, it's so nice to finally see you. This, this, this sort of condescending, patronizing. Like, we're here all the time. Yeah, and I think like, I'm moms. a great mom. Like, yeah. I think I am a great mom. Well, I don't let's think just I'm say perfect, for but- the record, Georgie <laughs> is one of, if not the most remarkable girls I've ever met. I mean, that kid is just in. So talented and incredible. I am like, she blows me away every time I see her. She's going to rule the world. <laughs> she will. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because someone said about my oldest daughter, Phoebe, my, one of my best uh-huh. friends said, Phoebe's just like you, Greg, just smarter and much better looking. And then, <laughs> and then Georgie comes along and my son Jameson is like, you know, just like the, my, the tender soul. But, you know, when I say, when, when, I, when I'm on the side of a soccer field and someone says that, or they say, well, who's taking care of your children, Greg? Right. I want to say like, are you kidding me? Like, I am so present. I know exactly what's going on in my kids' lives every single day. And we've got to allow women to say, I can be a great mom and a great wife and a great businesswoman. And mm-hmm. let me do this and watch me shine as opposed to judging that decision. I, I don't judge people that stay home and I don't judge people that, that work. But doing all of that free of that expectation of perfection that gets laced upon you. Yes. I mean, right? I, I, sometimes I'll go in. I mean, I took an award the other day. Uh, we won this beauty brand and I was saying I was exhausted. So I said, I got up on stage and said, you know, thank God the lights are dim. I have bags under my eyes and I run a beauty business. So right. don't, don't judge my products. I'm just tired. <laughs> I think you have to talk about it, you know, yeah. and just say, look, I'm exhausted, but I'm, I'm doing this because I think it's important. What do people not understand about, you know, someone who's running a company uh, of the scale and size that you do? Like what is the, what's the behind the scene? Because we've kind of lionized the entrepreneur and the mm -hmm. we're in this sort of CEO worship culture right now. I don't know how we got here, but CEOs and entrepreneurs are like movie stars now and and everybody wants to be one. Um, 
but what is the truth? Like, what's, I would say what's, I'm, I'm what's just the like hidden that, truth here, yeah. you know, like that, that we might not know from somebody who walks the walk. I did, I did say to a friend of mine who is a big actress in the last year, I said, yeah, I mean, I'm just like you, except for I didn't get the looks or the paycheck, but yeah, exactly. You know, I'm that big celebrity CEO. Uh, I think that, I think that what people don't realize is how unbelievably lonely it is. And and I say that because if you're at the top of an organization, who are you turning to? You know, I have an incredible um, executive coach, Khaled, um, who I love, who's been instrumental to my success over the last number of years. But I do think it's really lonely. I mean, it's lonely at work and it's lonely at home. You know, mm-hmm. I have a husband who has an incredibly successful career and you know, well, Mark, and he's an amazing husband, but he's not an entrepreneur and he doesn't often understand what I'm going through in the internal you know, what's going on in my head, you know, when I lie back at, you know, 1030 at night and say, Hey, you know, did you end up having to fire that person? And then my, you know, brain spins for the next door. You, are you going to be able to make your numbers this month? You know, and he's just trying to be supportive. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Now I'm up till three in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. It drives me crazy. Uh But I think it's really, really lonely. I think also, as I said earlier, this, as a woman trying to wanting to be liked, but knowing you have to be strong and trying and it's hurts. It really hurts when people, say you're tough bitch or whatever. I, I don't think I am. I'm an incredibly loyal friend. Mm-hmm. I actually am incredibly sensitive. I think most most CEOs are really sensitive and really insecure and people just don't realize that because they project confidence, but that's not how they're feeling inside a lot of the mm-hmm. time. Interesting. So what are what are the big obstacles that you face now? I mean, the, the greatest challenge for me always is the challenge of people, managing people, their wants, their needs, their expectations, whether it's the independent consultants or the corporate team, my investors, everyone has their own personal agenda as they should, as do I, but it's hard to to balance all that and to be really good at it all the time. I make mm-hmm. mistakes every single day. So I think that's probably one of our greatest challenges is how do we get an organization of people to move in unison when you're talking about you know tens of thousands of people and you've got a corporate team and you've got independent consultants and sometimes they may feel we're misaligned even though our intention right. is always to do well by our independent consultants. We make mistakes and it's very personal for them. And, you know, we'll, we'll look at numbers on a wall say, did we make our month or are we as profitable as we want to be? And they're like, look, I'm sitting in my kitchen in Kansas and my kid's sick and you screwed up that email and it blew my day. I mean, it's that, so that's been really challenging as we scale. Um, and I think also tackling these issues, like when we take on things like MICA, these are not <laughs> insignificant issues. And when you make a promise to the world that you're going to tackle this, you, you really got to be up for the up for the mm-hmm. fight. And it's like Everest in front of you and trying to figure out how to navigate um, sketchy f- places, physically corrupt people, yeah. you know, it, it's it's hard. How do you keep your energy high for this? I think that I drink a lot of water. I exercise regularly. Yeah. Uh, I. What are your beauty secrets? Yeah, exactly. Right? I, I don't have a lot of beauty <laughs> secrets. Um, I do think um, I will shamelessly plug our new counter timeline. That's been it's been a game changer for my skin. But I mean, I think at the end of the day, I do this because I care deeply about what we're doing. I care about people, and I care about our health, and I. I want to grow old. I want my friends. I want to be there when my kids, you know, I had kids late. I want to be there when they're getting married or having babies. And I want everyone I love to be healthy and safe. You know, I, I, there's, there's a, um, there's a movie called Love Actually that many people have seen that was about the holidays. And one of the things I've shown people a thousand times is that scene that Hugh Grant's voiceover, and it's a scene from Heathrow Airport. And it talks about, you know, when the, when the, when the planes crashed into the World Trade Center, which was a horrible day for our nation, that there weren't messages of hate, there were messages of love. And at the end of the day, we that's all we care about is like life and those that we love and, and protecting those that we love. And so that is that the epicenter of everything that we do at Beauty Counter. And so when you know that that's your purpose, you're gonna get out of bed in the morning Yeah, and you do. And, and so what are your strategies or techniques for 
empowering the people that work beneath you? Um, I think it's helping them understand that what they're doing is making a difference even in those dark days and showing them. I think one of the things I haven't done well, but I'm getting better at is, is showing those, telling them those stories, helping to develop them to be stronger leaders and, and just knowing that, that you're making a difference. I think if you, you know, if you look at surveys, corporate teams or independent consultants, however, people that are working, they want to know that the work they do is meaningful and is actually is purpose-driven. I, I mean, increasingly you hear people talk about that. They don't just want to, if you're going to spend that much time working, you want it to have an impact on the world that's positive. Yeah. And so trying to shed light on what work we're doing, the progress that we are making, even when the days are dark, to say, look, it's not over, but we've done so many things well and impacted so many people's lives. And you know, people should feel proud of that. Right. Um, and we try to have fun. You know, I don't take myself that seriously. Like, I'm, you know, we'll once in a while we'll have a drink cart come around, or we'll do goofy things in the office. Like, you gotta like take a chill once in a while and settle into the stress and know like this is a marathon, not a sprint, and it's okay to laugh. It's okay to, you know, not you know to make mistakes. We're gonna make mistakes all the time. Let's have fun while we're doing it. Right. For the average person, beauty counter products aside. When they go to the pharmacy or the you know cosmetic, the Sephoras of the world, mm-hmm. and they're they're trying to figure out what to buy or what to get, and they're reading these labels and they're trying to educate themselves. Like, what are some of the worst offenders that they? I'm not talking about necessarily brand names, but like chemicals or what can they identify that they should really you know pay more attention to. I think there are some chemicals. So anything that says paraben, methylparaben, ethylparaben, parabens are one fragrance. I go shop fragrance-free whenever you can in uh, in sunscreen, not to use a spray sunscreens, but to use mineral-based sunscreen, not uh-huh. with the avobenzone and the oxybenzone. Not only, not only are they harmful to the health of people, but they are killing the coral reefs. Uh, there are things called PEGs. EDTA, there, there are those things that you can see on labels that kind of are stand out. And I think there are some great, you know, brands out there that there are quite a few. And I think in Sephora, they've now done a clean group. And if, and if you go to a CVS or whatever, they're going to, they're going to tell you, I mean, you know, companies like Bird Spies. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and also if you, if you have to make decisions, if you're looking at making a purchase and you have you know, limited resources, I think you can just take a jar of organic coconut oil or, you know, think about the things that are going on your body more than the rinse offs. Like it's more important to worry about your body lotion or your sunscreen than the conditioner in your hair that's going to rinse out. And so you can prioritize your spend on the things that are really, your skin's your largest organ. So if you're covering yourself head to toe with a lotion that's going to seep into your skin and into your bloodstream, I'd be focusing on those things. Yeah. How's the men's line? Come I think it's on. good. You know, the funny thing about the people love the men's line counterman. It's been really successful uh, in terms of people love it that you're using it. And I think oftentimes men think, you know, I always hear, well, I don't wear makeup. And I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about your makeup, guys. I'm talking about your shave cream, your deodorant. We're actually coming out with deodorant next year, which will be a huge win. But I somehow the women sometimes get scared about selling to men. I'm like, you're not selling to the men anyway. You're selling to the yeah, wife. The men are not so, buying, like, the men are buying it. So you just go sell to your friends. And it's the same thing. You know, we, we need yeah. to take care of our men too. They're just as important to this equation. And, you know, you have so many men who who follow you. And, you know, I don't know if you know this, but There's just- a lot of women too. I think more, I think the, the audience is more, more women than men. Is it more? Actually, well, good. Well, I'll more. tell to both, to both groups. Yeah. I think this is important, you know, vis-a-vis men, you know, the sperm count um, in the U.S. is down 50% right. over the last 25 years. And, you know, about 40% of male sperm is now defective. So if we don't think it's impacting men, it's absolutely impacting. It's impacting all of us. And so, you know, every one of us needs to be focused on our bodies and our safety and hopefully, you know, just knowing a little bit more. Uh, And I also think that, 
you know, I say that our, the product we sell is beauty, but we're trying to sell a clean lifestyle, you know, a lifestyle that you live, Rich. And I think that just those little things like just wash your floors with water and vinegar, take your shoes off at the door, you know, get rid of the plastic containers over time. Don't use nonstick yeah. pans. I mean, there's some basic things that can make a difference in your life right out of the gate. It's interesting when you think back to being kids and try to remember the cleaning products that you had in your house. And it was just a couple things, right? But now the typical household, when you open up that pantry or look beneath the sink or whatever, there's like 30 bottles of all different kinds of stuff. And it's like, how did we get to this point? We've been sold this idea that you need this for this and this for that. And and it's kind of insane. I was saying to my it's friend- like apple cider vinegar and water. I know, and well, know, that's, and that's what we use, exactly. I mean, know? these things are really basic. I mean, sometimes I'll be in the kitchen, I'll just put you know, olive oil on my skin. I think, you know, it's funny because I have my friend Leela Rose was in town this morning, uh, the one that originally wanted me to watch An Inconvenient Truth. And we we're talking about, you know, going into schools and kids being, you know, my kids being served Pringles in their school. I'm like, guys, like, why are you training them to eat unhealthy foods? Like, just if you started from scratch with just healthy foods, they're not going to be looking for mm -hmm. these things. We keep culturally programming people to make poor purchasing decisions for themselves. If you like Pringles, I'm sorry, it's just, I'm not a big Pringles fan. But I think the idea that you that less is more and that getting back to some of the basics is is really important for people. Right, and there's, well, the reason, look, there's huge vested interests in making sure kids continue to eat Pringles and these products find their way into schools, not by accident, you know? So you have to move these gigantic tectonic you know, political and business plates in order to even get tiny changes that we already all agree upon enacted. Right. And that's the difficulty. And that's what you face, you're facing in Washington and all of this. It's like, we all kind of agree that this is a good idea. This bill that was introduced in 2015 that still hasn't been up for vote. Exactly. I mean, getting you know, people like, to take on, action you know? is is really, really difficult. And you're absolutely right. You've got these large companies that are, you know, they don't want the secret, the beauty secrets to be told. I mean, that yeah. entire beauty industry has been built on secrets. And we're saying, no, we need to build an entire thing on transparency and authenticity right. and, and no bullshit dialogue with our clients. There, there's so many similarities to the food industry. You know, like the, in, in, in agriculture, there's ag gag laws that make it illegal to go inside these slaughterhouses and take photographs or videos because it's too threatening to the industry. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's the antithesis of transparency, you know, and the, the, the idea that you're trying to shine a light on this and are met with resistance is bananas. It's, yeah, it can be scary sometimes trying to, I mean, shine a light on these things because, I mean, it can literally be scary. I mean, you know, shining the light on Micah, it's just, that's mm -hmm. a scary thing to do, but you know, someone has to do it and we're the people that are going to do it. And I think that we, we, we deserve to have safe products. Full yeah. stop. Well, certainly millennials and Gen Z, you know, these things are, are much more important to the younger generations than they were to us when we were coming up. And that leaves me very hopeful about the future. And that purchasing power is so powerful, mm -hmm. right? And that's really going to drive markets. And to the extent that you can at a minimum, you know, serve the younger people that are coming up and make sure that you are, you know, meeting those transparency expectations and those sustainability expectations, et cetera, all the way down the line, that positions you for long-term success. Because I really think that is the future. Um, and you're somebody who's established yourself as being able to forecast these things well in advance. 
Yeah, I do think that the future generations are depending on us to do the right thing, and they're they are demanding it of us, the younger generations, and we we have no choice. You know, we have we have to change. We have to figure out a way to lead businesses that are doing well and doing good simultaneously. There's there's just got to be a better mm-hmm. path forward. And I think that you know you speak about the food industry, and I you know someone said to me a couple years ago, you know, do you think that clean beauty is a fad <clears throat> or a trend? And I said no, the clean beauty is the future. It is the here and the now and the forever. And in the same way that no one's going to say, oh, please put all that food dye back in my mac and cheese. No one's going to say, oh, please put all these toxic chemicals, the numbing agents into my baby shampoo again. Let's just do the right thing. And and I think one of my personal goals with Beauty Counter is to show that you can be successful as a B corporation, as a company that's doing well. Maybe we don't make as much money as other companies, but that's okay. Like we can still be a, a, a strong financial, you know, business over time mm-hmm. that that will last forever. And you know, I think that's that's critically important to the future of commerce. Yeah, I mean, I think with iterative innovation, you you get to that point where where the product that you're offering with natural ingredients becomes indistinguishable with you know what they've come to expect with the chemical laden version of that. In the same way, we're seeing that with food right now. Right. You I always know. say to you know when people say when are you going to stop, and to me it's when we when we, we stop when our children and our children's children don't need to worry about reading the labels and the products that they right. use on their bodies every day. Right. And when we're all grandparents and they say, "Remember when they used to put all that crazy stuff and you used to put it on your skin?" I know. You know? I know. I can't. I can't wait for someone to be able to say that. <laughs> Unfortunately, right. they right now they're still. Saying, It'll be like why, why you, you know when you when you watch Mad Men and you know the the pregnant woman is smoking, smoking. or whatever, and you're like, well, "How did that happen?" Right. I think we're going to look back. I'm hopeful and and optimistic that that will be the case. I think that it's already happening. I mean, I have seen just an unbelievable amount of, you know, I mean, the the changes that have happened in the beauty industry since I launched in March of 13 and even over the last two years have been pretty significant. And when you see all of the big guys talking about it now, you know yeah. that this is, they know this is here right. to stay. And there there are, they're, they're going to be first to change or they're not going to be around. Yeah. <clears throat> well, there's a, but there's a difference between the greenwashing that you see where they make the marketing materials and the labels right. all kind of look like they're doing the right thing or they say the right thing, but it's not actually the right thing. Well, it goes back to you that know? aloe <laughs> yeah, thing. Right. How's here's your aloe product that has no aloe in it. And I know I always say, you know, that's one of the things, you know, people said, well, why don't you have, you know, flowers and trees and leaves? I'm like, no, because that, that that's always misleading. It's not about, it's not about pretending like you are. It's like, just, just give them a product that works. It's safe. Right. Full stop. All right. Well, let's, let's round this out. Um, I think it would be good to, to um, leave people with a few words of wisdom <laughs> laden from your experience to the budding entrepreneurs and solopreneurs and environmental activists out there. What is the advice that you commonly give to people who are coming up? I think that, and this is probably more geared towards women than men, but I think it's true of everyone, is that you genuinely have everything that you need to be an enormous success and that it is about just a lot of hard work and that overnight success is like 10 years of 24 mm-hmm. seven. But I do think so many people doubt themselves and they, they listen to others. And I would be here to say, if you believe in something, 
you can do it and you've got this. You've absolutely got it. You just have to to stay the course and know that there are going to be some dark moments in time. Yeah. Um, which I, I don't think enough people are saying that, especially to women. I don't think enough people are saying you have everything you need to be successful. You've got what it takes. I think a lot of people doubt themselves. And I'm always here to say, if your mom didn't tell you that, if your husband didn't tell you that or whatever, I'm here to tell you, you've got it. And I think that's a really important message. I also think that if you're trying to build something, you're your own personal self-awareness is important. Know where you're strong mm-hmm. and know where you're weak and find people to to support you in the areas in which you're not strong. Don't try to lean, you know, pretend you're good at everything as an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs do that a lot of the time. They don't want to show weakness or vulnerability. They're scared to admit that they don't have all the answers, but there's no one has all the answers. And so to the extent that you can acknowledge where you're not as strong and then find people who can get you to those answers, right. that makes you a lot better. Surround yourself with people more expert in their, in those areas that you can also trust. Right. And trust your gut. I mean, I think of so many of the mistakes I've made along the way with Beauty Counter are, are the times in which when I listened to people and I knew in my heart that they were, yeah, I was kind of, you know, even being bullied in my own company of people telling me that I was wrong or, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, no bullshit. I, I'm going to like stick with my gut. And if I think, you know, we have, we have an, we have something at Beauty Counter that I think has served us well. And so if people are running their own businesses or, you know, or even in your partnerships in life, you know, we have something we always say, are you willing to fall on your sword on this one? Like you care this deeply about this issue or about this initiative, about this thing that you're willing to fall on your sword if you're wrong. And I've found that when people say yes, and I do it myself, we all do it now, that 99.9% of the time the people are right. right. And so and when I say to the team, hey guys, I know you can't see this, but just trust me, trust me on this one. Those are the moments in which I know I'm right. And, and, and I do the same for my teammates. And if you're not right and you fall on that sword, that's okay that's too. That's okay too. Right. I mean, you're going to be wrong sometimes, mm-hmm. but I do think most of the time people are right. And and I also, I, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier. And this isn't necessarily, these aren't words of wisdom, but I think it's so important just to remind people that you can be a great mom and work and be a great spouse and you can do all these things and maybe it's just not all in the same day. So we tend to put so much pressure on ourselves to be perfect all the time. You know, there are days when I'm not with my family and I'm FaceTiming them. And then there are days when I'm completely home and and not at the office. And I think that I want, especially women to stay in the game and to know that they can do it, even if it's on a part-time basis, whatever they want to do, that staying in the game is important and that you can be great at both. And it's not, it doesn't have to be one or the other. They're not, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. I wish Mm -hmm. more people knew that and had the confidence to, to do both. Yeah. There's this pressure not only to excel, but to have everything in perfect balance all the time, because that's the message that we've been that we've been sold, and we shoulder that ourselves, thinking like we have to be the best parent and the best at everything, every single day, every hour of the day, and that's not life. Nobody's in that position, and then we beat ourselves up because on a particular day we fell short in one of those categories. Right. You know. Be there for the important moments yeah, yeah, yeah. in your business. Be there for your moments, moments in life. Well, what you've created and the mission is super inspiring. I have Thank so you. much respect for you. And I just also want to say for the record, you've been an incredible uh, resource of advice and help for Julie in her in her cheese line, Shreemu. So thank you for that. Like well, She values your advice tremendously and you've been very, very helpful. So She's going to crush yeah. it. It's, it's pretty amazing. It's so. pretty exciting. Well, I, again, yeah. I think women have to support women. That's really important yeah. to me. And uh, so I'm, I'm always going to be there for her. All right, cool. Well, come back and talk to me again sometime. Okay, thanks I for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> okay. um, if you're digging on Greg, you can go to beautycounter.com or you can find her on You won't find Twitter me on the website. Or, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you won't find her on the you website. You find me on Instagram, maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, 
on Instagram, Greg Redfrew, and Twitter as well. And if somebody's listening who wants to become uh, involved with the company, how do they do that? They, they just go can, to your website and sign up? How does that work? Yeah, they can go to the website and sign up, or they can always you know, email uh-huh. our offices, info at beautycounter.com. We're always happy to talk to people. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, thanks so much. Thanks. All right. Peace. Plants. Powerful, that Greg Renfrew, right? Hope you guys enjoyed that. Do me a favor, hit Greg up on the socials. Let her know how this one went down for you. You can find her at Greg Renfrew, two Gs, G-R-E-G-G, Renfrew on Twitter and on Instagram. And be sure to check out the show notes on the episode page to learn more about Greg and Beauty Counter, or just go to the Beauty Counter website, beautycounter.com. If you'd like to support our work here on the show, subscribe, rate, and comment on Apple Podcasts or Spotify for all you Android users, or and or YouTube for the visually inclined. Share the show or your favorite episodes with friends or on social media. I absolutely love seeing all the screen grabs on Instagram. And of course, you can support us on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. I wanna thank everybody who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiello for audio engineering, production, show notes, and interstitial music. Blake Curtis and Margot Lubin for videoing and editing this show for YouTube and all the Short clips that we share on social media, Jessica Miranda for her graphics wizardry, Allie Rogers for portraits, DK for advertiser relationships and theme music by Analemma. Appreciate all of you. I don't take your attention for granted. I love you all. And I will see you back here in a couple days with the return of anti-aging maven, David Sinclair, PhD. Here's a peek. Nobody has any reason to say that we have this clock that cannot be changed. In fact, what we've learned is that about 80% of our health in old age is due to our lifestyle and how we live, and only 20% is genetic. And actually, that your genes are not your destiny. That's the good news. So what that means is it's up to you, and if you want to be frail or, to be honest, dead at 80, go for it. We know how to do that. Eat the cake, sit on your fat ass and watch movies. That'll get you there pretty quickly. The problem with today's world is marketing, branding, our own primeval brain. We just want to be relaxed. We want to be fed. We don't want to feel discomfort. And that's leading to a whole bunch of problems. And if we're not always telling our body things that could be problematic, our bodies don't care. They don't fight against disease. They don't fight against aging. So the bottom line is you've got to get out of your comfort zone, get your body out of its comfort zone. (laughs) 